The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. Today we've got a great discussion that touches upon the role of government, the role of business, and also on a series of climate issues that are really important to us all. And I uh, am excited to begin right now. Naomi Oreskes is the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science and Affiliated Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University, a world-renowned Earth scientist, historian, and public speaker. Her latest book with Eric Conway is The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and and Love the Free Market. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Your book touched on a theme that has close to my heart, um, which is the the uh, conception and sale of the idea that uh, free markets were, as you put it in the book, one of the core freedoms that we have in life, uh, and. Uh, and and something your book does exceptionally well is uh, talk about how the groundwork was laid for making this case and how it went from being uh, an unusual argument that was an outlier to something that seems core right now. And I'm struck by it um, because for all the the evidence supported in your book and 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 by others who have discussed this issue. We seem to be moving tighter and tighter in our embrace of this idea, uh, and uh, that manifests itself in in a lot of the discussions about environment, in which you know uh, candidates, for example, in the United States, are saying, "Well, we you know we must have no regulations, and uh, regulations just impose imp- impose a cost." Um, it's, go, it's gone so far that the other day I heard on Fox News um, a woman who said, if you're a socialist, you're an anti-Semite. I mean, it was, I mean, it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, it's just, it's just grown out of control. Um, and, and, and I'm just wondering, what, what do you think is the underlying trend um, 
as 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 far as this idea that people have been selling so hard for so long? Well, I think it's always really hard, and especially as a historian, we historians tend to be loath to predict the future. Although I did write a book about the future with Eric Conway, so I just I don't can't use that as an excuse. Uh, but you know, it's so hard to evaluate trends when you're in them. But I think what we can see, I think that we're actually at an inflection point. I think we're at a point where a lot of people realize that the rainy ideologies of market fundamentalism, trusting the magic of the marketplace have really failed us, and particularly in the area of climate change. But at the same time, we don't know what the alternative is. And so many people are dug in so deep into this ideology that they're just digging themselves in deeper. Rather than actually step back and examine it and think about what the alternatives are, they just defend it in you know lunatic ways, like that comment that you just quoted, which makes no sense in any universe, parallel or otherwise, right? Um, but I think the COP, since you know, since this podcast in the, is in the context of COP, I think COP is a really worthwhile way of thinking through this issue. So lots of people have been discussing in the last few months whether the oil industry can be a trusted partner in addressing climate change. And in this case, even can the oil industry lead the COP meetings? And for many people, the answer to that is obviously no. The conflict of interest is enormous. This is the industry that has created the climate crisis by selling the product that drives the crisis. And it's also an industry that we know, in part because of my own work with Eric Conway in our first book together, Merchants of Doubt, this is an industry that has lied about their product, that has spread disinformation about climate science, that has attacked climate scientists, that has attacked historians documenting the attacks. Um, So it's really not remotely plausible that we would consider this industry to be trustworthy And if we compare it to the other industry that I've studied closely, the tobacco industry, um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Tobacco Control explicitly says that the tobacco industry cannot be a partner in tobacco control because their own activities prove that they cannot be trustworthy. And I think we have the exact same situation in climate change. And yet we don't know what the alternative, we can't see any way out of it because we are so locked into this idea that we have to solve our problems through markets, that we have to partner with big business, and that there isn't any alternative. And so the whole thrust of our new book is to explain why we came to think that. Because as we say in the book, there are always alternatives. To say there's no alternative is a colossal failure of imagination, or it's a deliberate deception to make us think there's no alternative. And so in the book, we show how this ideology was developed, promoted, propagandized over the course of more than a century in the United States in particular to persuade us that we should trust markets, that we should trust the private sector, and that we didn't need government to address the failures of modern capitalism. Um, yeah, and, and I'd like to come back to that in one moment, but let's 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 stick with this core idea for a second. Um, I, I said this idea was dear to my heart because a while back, um, uh, I wrote a book about the relationship between business and government called Power Inc. And in writing the book, I went back and I really tried to get a sense of the origins of the idea of corporations. And, you know, the oldest still existing corporation in the Western world um, is a paper company that was founded in Sweden and it originally was not a paper company. It was a copper company called Stora Koperberg. Um, and it was founded about a thousand years ago. And the idea behind the charter that was given out was people die, 
and you want these enterprises to continue. So you create an imaginary person that can continue onward uh, because the economic activity taking place benefits the state. And that for most of human history, um, from then until the middle of the 19th century, the idea was corporations were created to serve the state. Um, And it was only in the middle of the 19th century that the United States Uh, with a Supreme Court decision involving the trustees of Dartmouth College, and then later with the 14th Amendment, uh, accidentally, uh, began to sort of attribute to companies a separate identity, identity separate to the state, an identity that was much more like the identity of an individual. Um, And since the 14th Amendment was passed, the, it has been brought up more times in courts to protect the rights of corporations than it has been to protect the rights of people. Um, and, and so, you know, I, we are responsible for this particular development in the United States, particularly. Um, and I'm, I, it, it's not the model that exists in, in other parts of the world, of course. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, do you have any sense that the tension between our model and a European model and the Chinese model might offer a bit of a solution to this? Well, that's a great question. And our book focuses on the United States in part because it's a sprawling enough story as it is. It's a big story. It's a big book. Um, I always like to remind readers they don't have to read all 547 pages. Um, you can read, you can dip in and read different parts. But, but so we focus on the United States and we don't go into a, an analysis of the question that you're asking. But I think the suggestion is a good one that one way we can think about alternatives is to see how other countries do it. And we tend not to do that in the United States in part because the myth of the magic of the marketplace is also tied to the myth of American exceptionalism. The idea the claim that America is the greatest country on earth, that we're the best at everything, and we don't therefore have too much to learn from other countries. I think that myth has been challenged in a really big way in the last 40 years, and particularly in the last 20 years, because we've seen a few things which we do discuss at the end of the book. One of them is the COVID pandemic, in which the performance of the United States was quite poor compared to other comparable wealthy nations. We know that a million and a half people died in America. And, you know, statistically, if you correct for the size of the country and demographics and all that, it's a much higher rate of death than we saw in Germany, France, England, or even in quite a few Asian company, countries like Singapore or even Vietnam. Even much poorer countries did much better in responding to the COVID pandemic. So the idea that we do everything right and best here, I think, is not really standing up to scrutiny these days. And then just healthcare in general. I was talking to someone the other day who's an expert on this. The United States rates 40th in healthcare outcomes across the world, but we spend more on healthcare than anyone else. So we're spending all this money, much of it in privatized medical care, and we are not getting a good return on our investment. Um, and we can you know, come up with many examples. The other example we use in the book is life expectancy. You might think that the United States being 
<clears throat> one of the richest, one of the most innovative, one of the most creative countries in the world, uh, and one of the most technologically advanced that we would also have the longest life expectancy. And again, that used to be the case. It isn't any longer. Life expectancy in the United States has actually fallen in the last 20 years. And that's not just because of the pandemic, even before the pandemic that was happening. Um, and even if you if you match people sort of apples to apples, so you know, take someone like me, a middle-aged white woman, pretty well off, compare me to the equivalent in England or France or Germany, my equivalents in other countries live longer. So even though I'm privileged, even though I'm white, even though I have good health insurance, I still will not have as long a life expectancy as if I, the exact same person, lived in Germany. So something is not right in this country. And so I think, and I think people know it. I think a lot of the unrest and division we're experiencing is because of that. But the question then is, what do we do about it? And so part of the reason we wrote this book and part of our hope is to open up a conversation to say, you can still love America. You can still be a patriot. I mean, I've traveled a lot. I think this is the most beautiful country on earth. I do love America. And I think there's so much to cherish in this country, but there's also something really fundamentally wrong. And we think that at least one of those things that's fundamentally wrong is this over-reliance on the private sector, over-reliance on market mechanisms to solve our problems, when all of history, all of the experience of people living in other countries shows that markets are very good for certain things, but they're really bad at other things, and particularly they're bad at healthcare. And so if and they're bad at protecting the environment, and they're bad at protecting workers. So if we want the right balance, we need to re-embrace governance and to recognize that the reason we have government is to address problems that we can't solve on our own or that can't be solved by the private sector on its own. Yeah, I think one of the points that you make in the book that's particularly good um, is that um, uh, companies benefit from well-regulated markets uh, well-regulated markets have eliminated problems that uh, it, it existed not just for citizens, but but for the companies. Um, and uh, you, in the, I think, in the book, you refer to the, the 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 myth that markets have a certain kind of wisdom. Uh, they also clearly don't have consciences. One one example I I like to 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 give in in this respect is that during the financial crisis 2008 and 2009, two automobile companies in the world approached bankruptcy. Um, one was in the U.S., one was in Sweden. Um, it, because in the United States of this ideology that you talked about, there was no social safety net. So when General Motors was tottering, teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, the Obama administration had to step in and rescue it because the result of a collapse of General Motors would be a million people um, uh, who who would be left in dire straits and the government would have to come and clean up the mess. Uh, in Sweden, a country we think of as kind of socialist and 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 therefore in, in the US ideology backwards, um, uh, there was a social safety net. So when Saab failed, the Swedish government said so long. Uh, and let it fail. Now, who's the bigger champion of the markets there? The United right. States that artificially props up General Motors or Sweden? Um, and 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 so I think this, you know, and this ultimately will get us to the COP28 thing, but I, I'd just be interested in in your thoughts on um, how, gov how, how businesses that sell short the role of government sell themselves short. Yeah, well, I think the example you gave is really great 
Because if you believe in competitive capitalism, then you have to believe that companies that do poorly should fail, right? That's what competition is all about. The better companies should thrive and the less good companies should uh, atrophy and eventually go out of business. But if the government has to artificially prop up companies because of the colossal consequences, particularly the human consequences of throwing a million people out of work, then it grossly distorts the system, right? So this is a really important argument for why it makes sense to have healthcare decoupled from the workplace, that everyone should have healthcare. And it's not just when companies go out of business. It's also about the freedom of labor. So the people we talk about in our book use the word freedom all the time, claim they're defending freedom, claim they believe in freedom, claim that everything they do is motivated by the desire to protect freedom. But actually, many workers in America lack freedom, and particularly before Obamacare, people were afraid to try to change jobs, afraid to quit their job because they would lose their health benefits. And so people essentially became prisoners of their job. Um, And I, I had friends, personal friends, who really had jobs they would like to quit, but said, oh, we can't quit. I had friends who told me they couldn't quit their jobs until they turned 65 when they would have Medicare, and then they could change jobs if they wanted to. So this is a giant distortion of the marketplace that arises from the lack of an independent social safety network. And it would be better for employers too, if the federal government had a good social safety net, because employers should want workers to change, right? Employers should want workers who aren't that happy in their position to look for something else that might suit them better. Um, So that's just one example. And then of course, there's the whole problem of the level playing field. So one reason why you need adequate regulation of workplace safety, labor laws, environmental protections is because if you don't, then any company that wants to do the right thing to treat its workers well, to clean up workplace, you know, risk dangers, or not to dump toxic chemicals in the oceans or the atmosphere, that company is disadvantaged relative to a competitor who does those bad things and who saves money by doing bad things. So Properly enforced regulations create a level playing field so good companies that want to do the right things are not disadvantaged relative to bad companies who don't care. So there's a paradox when we start coming to talk about this with regard to climate. Uh, I've been involved in a lot of discussions since I was back in the government 30 years ago and ever since on climate, what's the right formula, how do you get it to work? Um, And a lot of government initiatives have not been super effective. Um, one of the goals of, 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 of climate advocates was to move to greener forms of energy. Um, and a lot of the government incentive programs weren't terribly successful. And then along comes China, which is not, you know, a market economy in the way that we think of a market economy is essentially planned, uh, but is terribly polluted. Uh, and they need to come up with a solution for this because a million people are dying every year of, of pollution. Uh, and they see an opportunity once they get up to scale with a lot of these green technologies um, to sell them to the world. And so they then, you know, I, you know, the commun- the Chinese Communist Party, you know, then, uh, you know, b- backs into driving a green revolution via the marketplace that's been more successful than the one, you know, that regulators were trying to create incentives for. So, I mean, that's a flip in this, right? Right. Well, and there's lots and lots of ironies in this space. So that's one of the ironies. And and 
Another one that I remember some years ago, I remember listening to the radio and there was some guy from the Competitive Enterprise Institute whining about China and how China was subsidizing its solar uh, panel industry. And so therefore they were out competing the United States. Well, to me, this was super ironic because the Competitive Enterprise Institute is a group that has long denied or dismissed or, or downplayed the risks of climate change has always pushed for, you know, free markets, market-based mechanisms. And then here's this guy saying, oh, but we need to subsidize the solar industry here in the United States to compete with China. So, you know, the reality is these guys want to have it both ways. They don't want government intervention when the government is telling them they need to protect the environment, but they do want government intervention when it could help them. And so this is part of the paradox or the irony or the dishonesty, depending upon what word you prefer. But the reality is if we look at history, we know that, you know, the free market has never existed. There's not a country on earth, including the United States, that has an ideally free market with no restrictions, no regulations. And if you don't believe me, just think about, I mean, I don't know where people listening live, but if you live in Massachusetts, go try to buy alcohol on a Sunday, or even in most parts of the United States, go try to buy alcohol before 10 o'clock in the morning, right? I mean, we have all kinds of, or try to buy cigarettes. There are all kinds of restrictions um, on what we can do. Go try to sell a kidney, go try to practice medicine without a license, go try to cut hair without a license, right? I mean, there's all kinds of restrictions we have on the marketplace for all kinds of different reasons. Some good, some maybe not so good. We've always understood that markets had to be regulated in different ways. And in fact, that predates capitalism. You can find rules about how to operate markets in the Bible. So the idea of a free market that exists apart from culture and civilization is a myth. And that's the central part of the big myth that we're talking about in our book. But the reality is that Regulations can be good for business too. So we already talked a little bit about that. Certainly the Securities and Exchange Commission is good for business because it helps prevent fraud, helps the honest people do business. Uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that protected depositors from banks going out of business has been good for banks as well as for, for individual people. And the other thing that is important, there's a word that's hardly ever used, but we should know. We all know the word monopoly. We all played the game as a child. But there's another word, monopsony. That's when there's one purchaser for a product. And one of the things that China has done that has helped advance its renewable energy economy is essentially a monopsonic um, policy that the government is the buyer. So in China, if you generate wind power, the government guarantees that it will buy it. And so this basically takes away the risk and ensures that people who generate wind power can sell it. And so that creates an incentive for, um, for the production of wind power and then, and then it increases. And we have things somewhat like that in the United States, not exactly the same, but the Texas wind industry is very, indis- very interesting. Uh, Texas generates tons of wind power, even though we don't think of it as a green state. And that development was largely part of something that happened when George W. Bush was governor of the state, they instituted what they call a plug and pay system. That meant that anyone who generated wind power could plug into the grid um, and sell the wind power that they generated to the grid and the grid would be obligated to buy it. By doing that, that simple regulation empowered ranchers all over West Texas to build wind turbines on their ranches and sell that power to the grid as a supplement to their ranching income. And this has been extremely beneficial for ranchers, beneficial for their children who could stay on the ranch because the ranch is generating income, 
and beneficial for the state because now you have an additional source of power. So it's not exactly monopsony, but it's a kind of monopsony that this, this state grid is guaranteeing that there's a buyer for the product. And there are many examples of that in history. And this can be a very, very effective way to build markets, particularly in the early stages of an industry. Once the industry gets on its feet, um, then in many cases, you may not need to have these kinds of policies. But to get an industry started in the first place, especially when they're competing against powerful incumbents like the fossil fuel industry, these can be very powerful tools. Yeah, and this is something, you know, the average listener may say, well, I don't own a ranch. That's not relevant to me. But sooner or later, you're going to own an electric car, which is essentially uh, a machine that's going to generate electricity. And the system you're, you're going to want is the one where you can plug it in and sell that electricity back when you're not using it. Uh, and so all of a sudden, this is going to become extremely relevant to everybody else. And not to electric cars, but I can just say also if you own a house, right? If you own a home and you want to put solar pa- panels on your roof, right now, a lot of states under the influence of the utilities are restricting the amount of energy that I as a homeowner could generate and sell. But what would make more sense, what would actually be more competitive would be to say, you know, generate as much electricity as you can. That's good for the country. It's good for you. And if you have excess, you sell it back to the grid. And some states do that, but most right now do not. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Another perfect uh, example of this. So let's circle back then to this, this sort of core conundrum uh, at the heart of COP28, which is um, the, the, the fossil fuels industry um, and its role in um, shaping outcomes. Um, and the, the reason I describe it as a conundrum is they're there. You know, it's, it's, you know, they're not going to go away. They control a lot of our energy systems in the world. Uh, they also, in some cases, are are promoting, um, or or you know, selling via division some non fossil fuel uh, outcomes. How do we have a constructive conversation with those companies in the environment of something like uh, the COP process on an ongoing basis? Because it seems that it's very unlikely that the process is going to make progress without finding a constructive mechanism for dialogue. Well, I guess I want to challenge the premise there. I mean, I I understand what you're asking, and I certainly see the point, but I would say it's extremely unlikely that they'll make any progress with these people at the table, because that's what we've seen. I mean, this is COP28, so just sit with that for a minute. These people have met 28 times since the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. This process has failed us. I mean, that's the reality, and that's a harsh thing to say. And I feel bad saying it because I have a lot of friends who are involved in the COP process. I have students who are heading there next week. I mean, I certainly have for many years cared about this process, supported the process, hoped that it would produce meaningful outcomes. But we now have 30 years of experience to tell us that it isn't. And so, you know, there's that famous line that's always attributed to Einstein. I don't know if he really said it, but that insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. I mean, there's a point now in which there's something that just doesn't make sense about what's going on. And one of the things we know about why we've made so little progress is because of the role of the fossil fuel industry, both directly and indirectly. 
We know that they have directly obstructed the negotiations. We know that they have for years fought to even have the word fossil fuels even mentioned in the language that comes out of these meetings. And how crazy is that? We have a problem that's largely created by the use of fossil fuels. Um, I mean, depending on how you calculate it, it's at least 60% of it is driven by fossil fuels. And yet, what? We're not allowed to use those words in describing the problem. So that's clearly, there's a problem there. Um, and then indirectly, in at least two different ways, we know the fossil fuel industry has been very aggressive about lobbying governments to prevent climate policies that would actually reduce the use of fossil fuels. They will say they support the goals of the Paris Accord. Well, actually now most of them don't even say that anymore, but for a while they said that. But if you looked at what they were doing, it wasn't consistent with that. Uh, none of the major fossil fuel industries have cut back on their production of fossil fuels. None of them have cut back. Uh, not one has cut back on expiration for new fossil fuels. Uh, and, you know, you said some of them do some other stuff as well. Yeah, it's really tiny, though. Uh, there was an analysis a couple of years ago of Chevron, something like 98% of their ads touted fossil fuels or, or sorry, touted renewables or biofuels, you know, alternative energy but actually their budget for renewable energy was less than 2%, and now it's even less than it was then. So there's little or no meaningful action on the part of these companies towards moving towards a greener energy economy. So there's no action that any of these companies have taken that should make us believe that they're committed to solving this problem in a meaningful way that doesn't just protect their own interests. And then add to that the piece of the story that Eric Conway and I have studied in so much detail over the last 20 years, the active role of these companies in promoting disinformation, in undermining public understanding of the problem, so that people's commitment to action, their willingness to vote on this issue is undermined by their confusion about it. And the evidence of that is overwhelming. So what are we supposed to think of this industry knowing they've lied, they've promoted disinformation, they've attacked climate scientists, uh, they've lobbied governments against meaningful action, but now they want to be trusted with solving the problem. It just, for me, that just doesn't add up. Is there any area where you think this COP process can be productive or is it just sort of bureaucratically pushing food around on our plates? Yeah, that's a great question. I used to think yes to the first part, but I would say that in the last, since the last meeting, since the Paris Accords fell apart. And, and, you know, Paris, everyone celebrated Paris because they came away with something, but the reality was the Paris Accords were very weak, milk toast. Um, yeah. Well, I think many people miss the fact that the Paris Accords basically were an agreement between all the countries to do what they wanted to do on their own schedule without exactly. any mechanism for testing or altering. Right. Correct. But but then to say that, that they were making progress, right, to declare victory when in right. fact they hadn't. So to me, I think it is what you just said. They'll get together, they'll talk, they'll do something that gives them the capacity to say they've made progress. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm a physical training by physical scientist by training, although I've evolved into a social scientist. Um, but, you know, when you're trained as a physical scientist, there's something in the core of your core that that doesn't ever forget what you learned. And so here's the thing. We can talk about COP all we want. We can talk about commitments, intentions, whatever. But at the end of the day, the climate crisis is driven by one thing and one thing only, and that's the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. And that is 419 and rising. And it has continued to rise since 1992. 
since 1958 when Dave Keeling first started measuring it. We have, from the standpoint of the atmosphere, from the standpoint of the physics of the atmosphere and the physical processes that drive climate change, we have done nothing to stop this march towards climate disruption and climate um, damage. Climate instability, maybe is a better word. So, you know, I, I give these interviews all the time where people say, oh, but there must be good news. Tell us some success stories, right? Um, I've got a request like that sitting in my inbox right now. I understand that people don't want to be depressed, and I understand that people get tired of bad news. But the reality is this is a bad news story. And I think if we if we just keep telling us ourselves, oh, we're making progress, don't worry, this industry wants to be a trustworthy partner. I think it actually prevents us from fixing it. I think to really fix it, we have to acknowledge the system is broken. You know, if I keep telling myself my car is okay when it's not, then I'm not motivated to go fix it. But if I acknowledge that my engine is broken down, the car is not running, it's not safe to drive, I've got to take it to the mechanic, even though it might be expensive and difficult to fix. And that's the situation I think we're in now. I think we have to admit that we're in a really bad place. This industry cannot be trusted, and we have to figure out what the alternative looks like. Yeah, I, I I think uh you know you make a, a a vitally important point here. And that is, you know, this begins and ends with the science. And that needs to be the metric. And if the scientific objective is to stop or forestall the consequences of a climate crisis by reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, then you have to measure everything you do against that. And if and if you know you're measuring it against what you used to do, or some rhetorical goal, um, or you know what you can sell to the public, you're going to end up deluding yourself. Uh, right. And and the important thing there is, I don't want to come across sounding like some kind of physical scientist determinist. I'm not saying that you know science decides, but the reality is that even if we were to say, okay, well. Our goal is not to stop climate change, but to limit the damage, limit the suffering, right? Develop resilience. Even there, though, the reality is there's no way to limit the damage if you don't limit the changes to the atmosphere. As long as CO2 keeps rising, the climate instability, the climate damage continues to rise. And so then adaptation is a loser's game because you're always going to be playing catch up. And we've seen this already. Um, the example that I think is most compelling is the example of Venice. So some 20 years ago, uh, the Italian government, supported by the European Union, spent a huge amount of money to build these sea defenses to help protect the city of Venice, a cultural treasure, the home to a significant number of people from sinking into the sea. But now, 20 years later, they've built these sea gates, and already they're failing because sea level rise has... They haven't, it hasn't kept up. The design was based on what they thought the problem was 20 years ago. The problem has got worse since then. And so now they've spent, and I think it was hundreds of millions of euros to build this thing. And that's just one city in one country in Europe, right? And now multiply that across the globe. You know, even conservative economists who have looked at this say we're looking at trillions and trillions of dollars being spent just to prevent the damage that's happened already, much less to deal with the future damage. And so I just think that adaptation, if you don't also address the, the root cause, adaptation is a loser's game. And it becomes either either an excuse to pretend you're doing something meaningful, um, or it's just a kind of Hail Mary to say, well, we've screwed up, but we'll just try to do the best we can in a bad situation. 
Yeah, absolutely. I wish we could go on and on. I, I have to say, um, I think you get to an, a critical point here, one that we've tried to get to in our series as well. And that is that the obstacles are not just physical science obstacles. They're not just big companies that might have a different agenda. Um, but over time, they've become, they've taken other forms and they include what you refer to in the title of this book as the big myth, which is ideas that are sold by self-interested actors in the system. Uh, and I would go a step further, and you talk about it in your book in a variety of interesting ways, including, and people should go read the book to find out what I'm referring to here, uh, you know, Little House on the Prairie, uh, where, you know, we, we go quickly in our society from myths to culture uh, and myths to culture to our own identities. And people are going out there and they're saying, this, you know, if you do X, you know, if you regulate this business, then that's un-American. It's not who we are. Uh, it's not, you know, the, it, it takes away some of what made this country great. And, and, and you're all of a sudden not having a discussion about the science. You're having a discussion about some other issue, which is hard to quantify and also has the added disadvantage of being wrong. Uh, in, 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 in any event, um, yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank, this, this is a great book, which people should read. The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Um, and uh, I encourage people to follow, to not just to read it, but also to follow the work of Naomi. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll keep on this issue um, week in and week out. Until next time, bye-bye.